Well, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're going to be. I'll begin with a question. When you think of rest, what comes to mind? When you think of rest, that's a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hand. Pick me, pick me. You wouldn't do that anyway. What comes to mind when you think of that word, uh, rest? Maybe you think of a nap, and you're like, I can't wait for this afternoon. (laughs) Rest, right? Maybe you think of a nap. Maybe you think of vacation or being away from the kids that you still love very much, but that drive you crazy, right? Rest. Or maybe just not having to think about work for a week or turning off the mental stress, the mental noise of your day-to-day. That word rest is at the center of our passage this morning. It's the center focus of the passage that we're about to look to. In fact, it's used just in these verses, not even to mention the ones before and after, which it's used more. But just in the 13 verses we're going to see this morning, that word rest or restful or something, variation, is used 10 times. 10 times we're going to see that word in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Now, when I say rest, and when the Bible talks about rest, uh, at least in in the book of Hebrews, it's really not talking about a vacation. Uh, It's not talking about a nap, although I love both, right? Especially the latter. I think I'd like that even more. No, when the Bible talks about rest, and you're going to see this on the screen behind me, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. When the Bible talks about rest, It's talking about comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of God. Now you'll notice part of that can be realized right now, right? Part of it. But some of it is awaited, which is what we sang already about this morning. Some of it is awaited. It's going to come later on for those of us that are in Christ. But I want you to remember that. When we talk about rest, we're not just talking about taking a nap or having a vacation or whatever we may fill in the blank with. We're talking about comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. And also, the two things beneath it are very important. And that is that we're talking about rest from sins, and these three things are important. Rest from sins effects, seeing the effects of the fall, okay? Sin is in our world. It's rest from sins temptations, which we feel personally, and rest from sins consequences, whether they are day-to-day or eternal. That's rest, right? And rest is coming where we will be free from the effects of sin, the temptations of sin, and the wages, the consequences of daily or eternal sin. It's also rest from tirelessly working to overcome all three of those things. Because that's really where the rubber hits the road with comfort and security in the presence of, under the care of our God. Really what we're talking about, we look for future rest. What we're talking about is we're a one-day rest from tirelessly toiling and striving against the effects of sin in this world. Against the temptations, the ongoing temptations of sin in this world. And against the consequences of sin in this world. You see, There is built into the fabric of humanity, of human beings, a desire for lasting rest. And the author of Hebrews gives his audience that reminder. That that rest cannot be found in this life, but it awaits in the next life those who belong to Jesus. And because of that, we can rest in this life. We're going to see this in our passage this morning. So let's check it out. Hebrews 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but also you'll see a copy of God's Word, hopefully in the seat rack in front of you. We are at Fellowship People of the Word, and if you're a guest of ours, uh, we're glad that you're here, and we want you to know very far up front that we're a gospel-driven, Bible-saturated church, and so we're really going to be unpacking the Word of God this week, just like we did last week and many weeks prior, as we've been in the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to now in 4, 1 through 13. One more disclaimer is that you're going to see some quotations or maybe some indentations in your Bible. 
The reason why is because these are quotes from Psalm 95, uh, which he is, the author has referred to in last week, or two weeks ago's passage, okay? So remember when you see indentations or quotations referring to Psalm 95. Very important background. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, Psalm, uh, Hebrews 4, 1 through 13 says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. This is talking about the, uh, the wilderness generation. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, here's a quote, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's from Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That quote is from Genesis 2. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Again, from Psalm 95. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What we've seen in this letter, and by the way, I, there's a whole lot there, right? And we're, we're not going to be able to peel back every single layer. And some of that you're thinking, what in the world is this guy reading? Because it's a little confusing. And if you're reading in the King James Version, it's really confusing. Uh, I'm a big proponent of something that's more of a modern translation. That's part, part of why, because things like this can bog you down. But what I want you to see is in Hebrews already, starting way back before this, is that we've seen a few themes. We've talked about Jesus being greater, which is if you see somebody title their message in Hebrews, they usually fall on that, which I did. Greater. Jesus is greater than any and everything. And this is the main theme of the entire book. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses of angels. And you can continue to fill in the blanks. He's great. He also is sprinkled in throughout this letter, like any good sermon, and this is sort of a sermon letter would, he's sprinkled in warnings, words of application. And he's talked about fixing your eyes on God and his promise of salvation for his people. By the way, a word that is relevant not only to our generation, not only to theirs, but of every generation of God-fearers. Trust God. Trust his promises in a world where it's hard to do so. A timeless truth. He then has given us an example of what not to do. We looked at this in chapter 3. This wilderness generation, the Exodus generation that God liberated from Egypt. They were given a promise of God. What was the promise? Promised land, right? There's a promised land that is to come. If you stay faithful, if you stay with me, I have a land of rest for you. But what had happened? They questioned God, rebelled against God, took up idols. They wanted to go back to their captors. Egypt, slavery. At least we had meat there. At least we had a bed there. At least we had a dwelling place there. We're wandering. And they doubted God. We know your promises, but we don't trust them. And they failed to enter that rest, which is what we've already seen. 
just referenced just a moment ago. That rest described as the promised land may be familiar to us. The land of Canaan is what that is, that geographical location to them. And that's for Old Testament Jewish believers. But New Testament Jewish believers had heard of the gospel, a different sort of promise, but also seemed to have been looking back or elsewhere. The author of Hebrews used the word don't drift. So they too have been looking elsewhere and giving their faithfulness to other things. Back in chapter 3 verse 12 we sort of saw this warning. In chapter 3 verse 12 it said, take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So it's not just true of Old Testament saints. We as believers in Christ can fall away, right? Not to lose salvation but to drift and to wander. You see, we do the same thing. We make a profession of faith, and then we long for other things to fill our appetites, just like they longing for Egypt. We long for the sin that once enslaved us to fill our appetites, things outside of God's perfect design, his promise for us, his desire for us. And so we've seen warnings that are not just true for the church of the Hebrews and New Testament, the scattered believers in Gentile areas, but these are warnings for professing Christians even here, the warnings, chapter 2, verse 1, he said, pay attention lest we drift. Chapter 3, verse 6, hold fast our confidence. Chapter 3, verse 12, already, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And then, check this out, you get to chapter 4, and he says, after, listen, pay attention, don't drift, hold fast, take care, all these hard, harsh verbs. And then he says, rest. I don't know about you, but I think of that as silly, funny, humorous whiplash. Try, think about it, go hard, stick in there, take it easy. It sounds weird, right? All these things followed by rest. It's kind of like somebody saying, here's a gift, but don't break it, be careful with it, but use two hands, don't drop it, enjoy it. It's kind of a weird emotional whiplash, I think. I had a girl ask me to baptize her one time. I did baptize her, but as the date got nearer, she told me, by the way, I'm really afraid of water, like it gives me panic attacks, but I'll be fine. Don't, don't worry about it. I was like, what did you just say? I, I can't rest approaching your baptism knowing that you think I'm going to drown you, right? This may seem unusual, but the author's point is that life's race of endurance, and it is a race of endurance, is followed by a promise of rest from a perfectly faithful God. His aim isn't to instill doubt, but to encourage and strengthen the faith and obedience of the runner. Author of Hebrews is not trying to make us doubt today. He's trying to encourage you to press on. Hold fast. Don't drift. I'm going to leave you guys with a couple of things as we talk about this promised rest. And there are really two things that I want you to take to heart. And maybe, you know, I think that putting a couple of things on the screen help you to maybe take something and remember it more easily. So the first thing is this. It's a healthy fear. You ever heard that phrase before? A healthy fear? There is some fear that is healthy, I'd say. You see, this author is not just writing a letter. As I said, he's writing a sermon. And Psalm 95 is the text that he's preaching. Having already quoted Psalm 95 at great length in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, you even see indentations as you just skim through it. He keeps referring back. I mean, that's what preachers do, don't they? Read the text. You're going to see me do it in just a moment. Read the text. Look at this verse. Look at this verse. Look at this verse. Here's an application. This is a sermon. This is a sermonic letter. And so having already quoted it, he makes a big assertion in verse 1. Call it application. Call it a big theme. And then in the next verses, he explains how he arrived at said 
conclusion. Let's look at verse one. He says, therefore, which means in light of this thing that I've unpacked, this truth, this passage of scripture, here's what we can do with that. Sounds like a pastor, right? While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, we're gonna look at the second part of that verse in a moment, but the first part I want you to see first. He says, while the promise of entering his, that's God's rest, still stands. That's a strange thing to say about a generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and did, by the way, eventually, even though it was their children, reach the promised land. He says then to these people, the promise of entering that rest still stands. That's weird because that rest, it seems, was tied to a geographical location that ultimately, by the way, did not satisfy them. So it's a, it's a strange statement to bring to the table. You see, go and throw the map up there real quick. This is what we're talking about. Uh, the, again, this is not perfect. It's really just an approximation of what these wilderness wanderings looked like. But on the far left side, you have Egypt. That's where the Nile River is. Here's your history lesson for today. That's where that wandering began, right? And they were liberated from there. They crossed the Red Sea. You know, God through Moses parted the waters. and They crossed over on dry land. God fed them manna in the wilderness, even quail, meat, and he provided for them water from a rock. He constantly provided, and yet they rebelled. He gave them the law from Mount Sinai, which is what you see Sinai in all capital letters there. He gave to them and gave to them and gave to them and promised them, and they doubted him. And so they started to wander, and you see him going in circles even. And then the red line ends up there in the top right-hand corner, and you see the word uh, Canaan. That's the promised land. And notice, they're not there. That's the end of the journey for this generation, this wandering generation. They got right outside, and they sent uh, spies in. Caleb was one of them, great name. Uh, they sent spies in, and they said, guys, the, the army is great, but our God is greater. And yet they doubted. And the wilderness generation fell, and their children would enter the promised land of Canaan. You can take that down. Now listen, because of that, they got there, okay? And then the Jews lived there for some time. Then they were removed from their exile, then came back there. And now you have Jewish people that live in Gentile areas that are part of a church, believers. And then the author of Hebrews says, the promise of entering that rest, the one we just looked at, it still stands. Isn't that weird? That's a weird thing to say to Christians, that there's a, for me and you, that that rest still stands, you see, I'm going to suggest to you it's not tied to the land of Canaan. It's not tied to a geographical space as we see, and that's very important. It's meant to be. To say that promise of rest still stands is a strange observation, and that's why he goes and unpacks it in verse 2. He explains this very strange thing. He says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He said, Good news came to us, Good news came to them. It was of no benefit to them. The word good news there, it's a verb. He says, good news came. So in the Greek, that will be one word, and it's the word that we get the word gospel from. So what he's saying is, they were gospeled just like you were gospeled. Good news was given to them just like good news has been given to you. Their good news was God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. If they are faithful to him, he will give them rest, Canaan. Ours is, God offers salvation. If we are faithful to them, God will grant us rest. Is it Canaan? Mm, no. It's eternal dwelling with him, right? The author says something strange here. He says, the message, the, the gospel message of the Old Testament generation they heard did not benefit them. In other words, it was of no benefit from the offer of rest when there is no faith in the offerer of rest. There's no benefit in the offering if there's no faith in the offerer. It's like a life raft that is just an empty balloon if it isn't inflated and used for rescue, right? 
There's no benefit in being given a life raft if it is empty. <laughs> it's just a piece of rubber that's going to sink. That's what he's saying is the message they were given, the gospel they were given was of no benefit to them because they were not people of faith. It's not a matter of receiving information absorption. It is heart devotion. You see, faith takes what God has made available to us and renders it saving and effective for us. You know a verse that says this better than I just did, and it's Ephesians 2, 8. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved. There's the gift through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Here's why I say that. There is a gift and a response. And please hear this. Without the response, the gift isn't yours. Without the faith, there's no gift that is beneficial to you. In other words, and you'll see this on the screen, I think that this is an important reminder. Grace wrote a check, but faith cashes it. Grace wrote a check of salvation, but it is faith that cashes it. It is of no benefit to those who do not place their faith and trust in the saving work, the grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus. You see, God had by grace saved Israel from slavery, but they did not by faith enter the rest of the Savior. Forty years they wandered and they died. No benefit, that promise. They had failed to see that the rest was not in the comfort of property, but in the comfort of the provider. And that is the truth for every generation. Look at verses three and four. As we go through this, it's gonna make more and more sense because I know that this is a little confusing at first. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a reference again, once again, back to verse 11 in chapter three in Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For, hear this, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, quote, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That should sound a little familiar. You've heard that before, right? God resting on the seventh day. What does that make you think of? Creation. Makes you think of creation, and we should. Genesis 2, 2 is the reference here. Again, it's a preacher. He's saying it's written down. God wrote it down. Genesis 2, 2 says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Hear that? Finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And now, in, in verse 5 of chapter 4 of Hebrews, he says, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. What's God's rest? What's God's rest? God's rest is not Canaan. It is pre-sin, Garden of Eden, Sabbath rest. It is sinless rest. What is the promise for us, church? It is not Canaan. It is sinless rest in the comfort and care of our God. And this is the author's logic. Comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. It's not Canaan, it's bigger than that. He goes on with this. This is his logic in verses 6 and 7. Since therefore, it remains for some to enter it. Okay? It's not Canaan. There's something out there greater than that, and it still remains for some to enter into it. And those who formerly received the good news, gospel, failed to enter because of disobedience. That's Canaan. Again, he appoints a certain day today, that's what Psalm 95 says, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, that's an important word, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In Psalm 95, 
which by the way, David lived about 500 years after Moses and Joshua and these guys, the ones that we're talking about. David came along about 500 years after that. Now in Psalm 95, the rest offered in Moses and Joshua's time was past tense. David is writing about it in Psalm 95, that rest back then. But then David states it as presently available 500 years later as he says, today. Okay, And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying is, that rest wasn't just available to Moses and Joshua in the wilderness generation. David said, and God said through David, that rest is still available to us, Psalm 95. And then the author of Hebrews is saying, that rest is still available to us, first century AD. And your pastor is here saying today, that rest is still available to us. And it ain't Canaan. It is comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. That's why he says in verses 8 through 10, he starts to talk about it being still here. He says, for if Joshua, remember Joshua, just real quick, Joshua was the successor of Moses. Moses' generation failed. Moses died. Joshua led them then into the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to them. It says in verse 8, for if Joshua, your translation may say Jesus, by the way, it's the same name in, in, in Hebrew and in Greek. For <clears throat> if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest. Don't miss the word remains. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's two words that I want you to see there, and I think they're worth circling or underlining or something. And that is, verse 9, so then there remains. There's a rest that remains. The other word is in verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest has also, also next to, alongside God, has also rested just like God has from his works. Now I realize it's, you can kind of get bogged down in the details there, but I'll summarize it in this way. It's simple. Joshua led God's still hard-hearted people into Canaan, supposed rest. So why, 500 years later, is David in Psalm 95 writing to people, still living, by the way, in the land of rest, in the land of Canaan, and suggesting that they today <clears throat> have the same warning? Here's what I mean by that. If real, lasting rest was given to the Joshua generation, why then is David imploring God's people to hold fast lest they not enter it? They're living in it. They're living in it. They're living in the area, the promised land still. God, David's people are. Why would David say that it's still available, but they may still not enter it if he's not talking about Canaan? Guys, rest was never tied to a piece of land. It was then, is now, and was in Eden, tied to comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. This is why it's important. And I know that's a lot of details, and I don't even want to get lost in the sauce here. But here's the analogy. When humans enter rest, they, like God, rest from their work. I'm going to say that one more time. When humans enter rest, they, like God, rest from their work. Revelation 14, 13 wonderfully summarizes this. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Listen, God's work was creating, and he's done 
finished with that work, the creation exists. Our toil, our work. By the way, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when fall, when sin entered the world, our work, our toil is painful. It is wearisome. God told Adam that. Your work will be painful. It will be wearisome. Child rearing, childbirth will be painful. It will be wearisome. That's our toil. It is painful and wearisome. More than manual labor. It is work against the effects, temptations, and consequences of sin in our world and in our hearts. And it is a ceaseless work to overcome all three. You hear that, right? Your work is more than your job. Your job is the, is the least important work in your life. Okay? That is the least important work in your life. Your hardest toil is not a paycheck. Your hardest toil is against the wages of sin. Your hardest toil is against the daily effects, temptation, and consequences of still living in a broken and fractured world. That's your toil. And rest is coming. The Greek word for rest is likened to the calming of the winds. That's why I picked that image behind me. It's likened to the calming of the winds that come after a tumultuous storm where boats, your boat is rocking and water is pouring in and it's a toil to just survive. The word rest means the waters will be stilled. The waging will be over. The suffering, the anguish will cease because of what God has promised that comes next. There is a rest that remains for us. A rest from weary work. Listen. A rest from suffocating depression. A rest from battling addiction. A rest from crippling anxiety. From despair over your body image. A rest from a mountain of debt. A rest from the brokenness of creation. A rest from hatred, death, war, violence, a rest from cancer, abortion, arthritis, dementia, Parkinson's, a rest from divorce, from bipolar disorder, from mental illness, a rest from marital disputes. There's a rest coming, free from temptation, a rest from lust and gossip and laziness and procrastination, a rest from impatience, mean-spiritedness, selfishness, pride, a rest from lack of self-control, harshness, and all the things that you hate about yourself that you struggle against. If you're in Christ, rest is coming. Is that not good news? Can we praise God for that? Rest is coming, and we live in a world right now. I'm not talking about your paycheck. You are wearily working, are you not? Because we live in a sin-stained world. You're wearily working because the ongoing temptations of that sin. You're wearily working against the day-to-day consequences of that sin. It's a weary world, but rest is coming. For those of us that are in Christ, there will come a day that we will have comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. Back to Eden is what we're waiting for. And that's good news. But until that day, we toil, we work, we strive. When we're looking at the book of Hebrews and you're looking for application, um, I had, a, I had a slide that I was gonna show and I, I decided not to do it, but I, had a, I just put a big lettuce emoji on the screen. <laughs> So just imagine you're looking at a big lettuce emoji. Uh, like, I, actually, I mean lettuce, okay? Um, I always said, look for the lettuce in Hebrews. That's what we see in verse one. Look back at it. Look, look at verse one. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, there it is, let us, look for the let us. He says, let us do what? Here's the application. Fear, he says. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, that rest. There's a healthy fear, right? Back to what I started with. There's a healthy fear. That word fear is the word, the Greek word that we get our word phobia from. Fear, right? It's a healthy phobia of failing to enter his rest. And by the way, when I say fear, I don't mean paralyzing fear that disables and rattles the nerves the way that you may feel about public speaking or snakes. There's a healthy fear. Healthy fear is fear that is a stimulus to action. It's fear that motivates mountain climbers to test and secure all their equipment before they begin the journey. It's fear that motivates you to double check your child's safety harness in their car seat before gunning it 70 miles down the road. That's healthy fear because it motivates action. You see, it is the faith belief that the journey is perilous and not reaching the destination is horrific that motivates healthy fear that produces obedience and safeguards. It all comes back to healthy fear. And that's right. The real faith, real belief that the, that the journey is dangerous, it should produce healthy fear, should it not? And that healthy fear has consequences as well. And it produces obedience and safeguards. You see, if they really feared the wilderness generation falling away from the living God, they'd have had a healthy fear. And they would have been obedient. They would have created safeguards in the journey. And the same is true of us. Real faith produces healthy fear, produces obedience. When I was seven years old, uh, I, I grew up in a lot of different places. My dad, I've mentioned this to you as a, as a pastor. And do you anybody know where Summit, Mississippi is? Raise your hand if you know where Summit, Mississippi is. A few of you guys, yeah. So he pastored First Baptist Summit. And it was smaller then as it, than it is now, I think. I hadn't been there in a long time. But um, there was, it's back when there were a, a video rental stores. You guys remember? I'm not talking about Blockbuster and Movie Gallery. I'm talking about like local mom and pop video store. All right. If that's showing age, then I'm shamelessly doing so. Um, but there was a local video rental store. And my brother and I, we didn't really rent shows and movies. We rented video games. We had a Super Nintendo. And so now that really is showing age. So this time it was my brother's time to pick out the game it was his turn and so my dad drove a, a, a little green chrysler sedan which was probably too nice for him on a pastor's salary but you know it was at least a whatever i was seven years old what did i know but uh, i remember we're driving up to the video rental store the video game store and my dad said all right caleb um you stay here it's kyle's turn to pick the game my older brother we're gonna go in we're gonna do our thing we'll be back in just a minute you know what he said i was sitting in the back seat on the right he said turns around and goes he goes Stay in here. Don't touch anything. What do you think happened next? I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> I could see them in the, in the storefront window, and they were checking out, so they'd been in there a few minutes. And I was just like, don't touch anything. It's just a car. So I climbed up in the driver's seat and put my hands on the steering wheel and was like, mm -hmm, you know. Just testing it out. I'd played like, you know, Mario Andretti, Mario Andretti's racing on NES. It's the same thing, right? So I was in the driver's seat and I said, I just want to mess with the gear shift. This is kind of cool. It's a cool little neat contraption. And so now I, you have to press the brake to move the gear shift. And I don't remember having my foot on the brake, but again, I was seven, so who knows? How did I even reach that? I don't know. But anyway, I put it into reverse and the car starts to roll backwards <laughs> like this. And the storefront was right next to the highway and 
I guess the wheel was already turned to the right. And so I didn't realize, again, I didn't know much about driving at seven. I know it's shocking. But you don't have to push the gas for a car to start moving. That I did not realize because it automatically goes, right? So when I put it in gear, it starts moving. I'm like, I'm not pressing the gas. What in the world's happening? I look up and I see my dad, which he later told me that the store clerk said, sir, is that your car? And <laughs> my dad starts, he starts gunning it out the door and he's got that look on his face that a disappointed dad has. And um, he runs full sprint. He, I don't even know how this happened because it's like a James Bond move he pulled. I don't even know how he did. He's not a very athletic guy, really. So anyway, he runs around to the driver's seat, and I, as I see him coming, I jump back into the back seat, <laughs> and he flings the door open, jumps in, slams his foot on the brake, and just starts screaming at me. I don't remember what he said, but I, it probably wasn't kind. And I remember being so afraid of him that I got as small as I could, and I was pretty small, I got as small as I could, tucked in the very furthest part away from the driver's seat because I knew that if he got his hands on me, it was going to be bad. And he did. He wasn't even controlling himself. He was just aimlessly swinging his arm back, (laughs) trying to just spank whatever he can, and just swinging at me. And we laughed about that this week, and I was like, I got to figure out a way to say that because here's the, the principle there. My dad gave me an instruction sit here, don't touch anything. At its core, what I lacked in that moment was healthy fear of my father. I know that's silly, but it really is true. I lacked healthy fear of my father because if I had healthy fear of my father and the discipline that would ensue, I would have been obedient. In fact, trusting his love for me would mean trusting that his instruction was for my good. It wasn't because he was trying to keep me from a good time, right? It wasn't because he, wanted, he didn't want me to know the joys of sitting in the driver's seat. He didn't want me to kill myself. By the way, when he jumped in the car seat, the car was in the middle of the highway. You see, God doesn't give us instructions because he's trying to keep you from a good time. He's doing it because he wants to keep you from your own peril. Here's what sin does. I said this last time. Sin, every time, overpromises and underdelivers. Every single time. Sin overpromises and underdelivers. Guys, God loves you. His instruction isn't to harm you, but to protect you, to comfort you, and to fill your life to the fullest. And the sin that promises fulfillment, that says, oh, you need this, you need this. The God just doesn't want you to be happy. Come and pursue this thing. It overpromises and underdelivers every single time time. But here's the good news. Rest is coming. And we toil, but rest is coming. And that's the second thing I want you to see, that God has set for us a restful work. It's a restful work, and that is an oxymoron, right? Restful work, that doesn't really make sense. Uh, My work is not very restful, you may think. But remember, when I talk about rest, I'm talking about Comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God, right? Rest is comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God. Now, here's my question. We cannot have this in full now, but can we not have that in part now? Can we have comfort and security in the presence of and under the care of our God right now? Not in full, but partially, can we not? Look for the lettuce. It's in verse 11. Verse 11 says, let us, therefore, strive, work, 
toil. It says, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail. Fall, he says, brother, by the same sort of disobedience. He's not saying that our behavior determines whether or not we receive eternal rest, eternal life. He's going to talk about in verse 14, right after this, that we have a great high priest, Jesus the Christ, who has gone in our place to accomplish salvation for us. He's not saying that your eternity hangs in the balance on your behavior. He is drawing the connection between genuine faith and obedience. Genuine faith and obedience, just like the analogy that I used just a moment ago. So he says, let us strive, work, to enter that rest. These verses now are the so what for what came before them. There is a future rest that we await, but even now we must work at resting. Because it's not natural, is it? We must work at resting. All these things, I'm telling you to rest, to find peace. Is that easy? It's hard work to find peace. Isn't that, it's ironic, isn't it? Or oxymoronic. It doesn't make sense. See, we must rest in knowing that your daily struggles are temporary. Strive at remembering that. You can rest in knowing that this world is not your home. Rest in remembering that. Strive to remember that. You can rest in knowing that you were bought with a price, therefore you should honor God with your body. Strive to remember that. Strive to rest in that. Rest in knowing that your eternity is secure so your day-to-day doesn't have to be. Strive to rest in that way. See, that phrase, striving to enter that rest, is not the striving for eternal hope, but the striving of eternal hope. It's not the striving for eternal hope. It is the striving of eternal hope. That's hard work. Your flesh and the world are counter that, but that is the mission. That is our striving for rest. He then closes with a couple of verses that I think may be familiar to you as well. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For all intents and purposes, you can't split what he says are uh, joints and marrow. That's the whole point, is that God can. God can get between you. He can get all the way into you and know you to the fullest extent. He says, and no creature is hidden, verse 13, from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I heard one commentator say this. I think it's so good. It is not we who read scripture. It is scripture that reads us. It is not we that read scripture. It is scripture that reads us. In other words, no sin is unseen. The words of the judge pierce all hearts and know all persons. He uses the, this terminology, naked and exposed. What does that make you think of? It makes me think of Adam and Eve, right? Back to the rest, makes sense? Naked and exposed, he says, we are before God. It makes me think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the place of God's rest, that is the Garden of Eden, they only became ashamed of their nakedness when? When did they become ashamed of their nakedness? When there was something shameful to be seen when there was something shameful to be seen. Listen, you may fool your parents and avoid their punishment, but you cannot fool the one who distributes eternal punishment. You may fool your spouse and avoid their gaze, but you cannot and will not escape the gaze of our Lord. You may even fool yourself, harden your heart, and avoid the guilt, the conviction within, but you cannot avoid the final sentencing of the one who knows all guilt and who offers only one way to be declared innocent, and it isn't your work. You see, just like Adam and Eve, we bear the same 
curse and shame as those who first knew rest with God but lost it. You know what happens right after that? They got banished. They got banished from the garden at the end of chapter 3. They got banished, removed, because they could not be in fellowship with a holy God, and God still remained holy, and he said, you got to get out of here. You are naked and ashamed because there's something worth being ashamed over, and it's your sin. you got to go. And I don't just mean they had to leave a temporal place. They had to leave an eternal place, God's rest. Eternal comfort, eternal security was no longer theirs, and we, under sin, bear the same banishment. But church, please hear the good news. We are offered an invitation in place of the banishment. An invite in place of condemnation. Salvation in place of judgment. I breezed over something earlier that I'd like to close with. In verse 8, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If Joshua had given them rest. Your translation may say the word Jesus. It's because I mentioned this real quickly. They're the same name. Joshua is a, is a Hebrew name. It means God saves. Yeshua. It's God saves. That was Jesus' name. Yesu, Jesus' name, means the same thing. He would have gone by Yeshua, which means God saves. Is there a more perfect name for Jesus? You see, Joshua came along after Moses for a generation wandering, looking for salvation, looking to see God saves accomplished. And Joshua is their leader, a physical manifestation of a person who ushers in the reality that our God saves. But the land of Canaan was not the eternal resting place. But another Joshua would come. Another Joshua we know by the name Jesus. Is there a more appropriate name? As we, in the wilderness of this world, look around and see a weary world, stained by the sinful effects, the sinful temptations, the sinful consequences, and we look to the God-man, Jesus, greater, and are reminded when we say his name, God saves. Today, the invitation is very clear. We're approaching Christmas, y'all. We're about to sing a song that says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, suffering a weary world until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Today, God is offering you the chance to see your worth. And it's not in your job. It's not in your family. It's not in your work. What you bring to the table, your value is tethered to the fact that the God of all things, stepped into this broken world and said, I'm going to put it and all who would believe back together. This place is filled with people that don't have it together, and you're one of them. You may look around and think, these are all church people. I'm not like them. You're simply wrong. I've said it before, and I've heard it said other times. This place is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Today, the invitation is clear. God is offering you rest. And it's not based on what you can do. It's based on what Christ has done. He has vacated the grave that once ensnared us, that we may vacate the same grave. Praise God.